Well, hello there, church family. Andrew, thank you for leading us in a, in, a, in a time of welcome and prayer and reading. Musicians and vocalists, thanks for the work that you did before the lockdown there. Just a thrill to be able to uh, sing to the Lord, isn't it? And of course, thanks to Mike Ward, who's uh, behind the scenes producing all of this for us. So thanks, Mike. Well, we come now to the fourth message in our little series entitled For Such a Time as This. And so far in this lockdown, we've looked together at the comfort that is ours in the fact that God has not merely permitted or allowed simply these events to occur as though they kind of just fly through unfettered, but he has actually ordained these events to occur, meaning that this is all part of his plan, all part of his plan, and he is in complete control of the smallest and greatest detail. And we saw what a peace and what a comfort that is. We also saw in that opening message that there is a peace and comfort for us as believers, knowing that all our sins are forgiven. There no longer remains a fearful uh, judgment of God upon our lives. We, as those who have trusted in Christ for salvation, we saw no longer live under God's righteous judgment anymore, but he himself, God, loves us. And such is his love for us, we saw in that first message, that he gave us the spirit, gave us his spirit. And in giving us the spirit, who then takes up permanent residency in us, we are then enabled by grace to make use of all those available means of grace. We now pray prayers that are actually heard. We now have a spirit-empowered ability to understand the word of God. The natural man cannot understand the scripture. We benefit from fellowship. We partake in the giving of our finances so the Lord can accomplish his work around the world, both locally and globally. We sing praises uh, to a God with our hearts changed. We are blessed indeed. We're so blessed to be able by grace alone, not of ourselves, to live a Christian experience. We saw that even in the midst of a pandemic and all that we're going through. We then looked in the second message, the way in which God would have us live through a trial and doing so in such a way where we are free from anxiety and we saw the means by which we live with a peace, unlike the world has, is through prayer. We saw there also that we are to be filling our minds with all things that are true, honorable, pure, lovely, excellent. And I showed you there that instead of making a checklist of each of those to simply tick off, to instead think of them as being bound up in a person, the Lord Jesus, and to be flooding your mind with him uh, and all that he is, beholding him and his glory and going to the one place where his glory is beheld, the word of God. And how we, when we do that, married by prayer, the peace of God will be both with us and in us, guarding our hearts. And then last Sunday we looked, didn't we, at Jesus' words as it pertains to worry. And we saw there some lessons for us on how to safeguard against becoming overwhelmed. For we have a father who cares for us and a future that is 
secure. And as we enter into this fourth message in our series during full lockdown, I was struck afresh this week upon thinking about all that we have in Christ, just how blessed we are as believers. You know, unbelievers are in a helpless and hopeless state. And if unbelievers were given just a glimpse uh, to see their desperate and hopeless state, they would be overwhelmed indeed. Unbelievers have no true peace, just a fake peace. Isaiah 48 verse 22 says, there is no peace for the wicked that is unbelieving. Our peace as believers doesn't come from ourselves, we understand. It's a peace outside of ourselves. It's a divine peace from God. We are united to Christ, who himself is the Prince of Peace. I just cannot get over how blessed we truly are and so undeserving we truly are as believers. And so this morning, I want us to spend some time being reminded about the reality of what we have been given, not what we have made ourselves, as though we ourselves are competent, as though we ourselves are strong, but what we, such unworthy, undeserving people, weak and needy, have been given. And so to help us to do that, I want us to spend some time this morning in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter eight. And let us begin reading there in Romans chapter eight in verse 18. Verse 18 says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers in pain, the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having this, the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Verse 24, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is already sees, for what he already sees? But we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps with our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches the hearts, and he who searches the hearts knows that the mind of the Spirit, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were being considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. What an immense passage, you know, contained within the entire book of Romans and this passage that we've just read are some of the deepest, richest truths found anywhere in Scripture. Chapter 8 really is the Mount Everest of Romans. Some would say, but what about Romans 9? No, Romans 9 is just the overflowing reality of what is here in Romans chapter 8. This chapter is the citadel. This chapter is also referred to commonly as the chapter of the Holy Spirit. You know, Paul wrote Romans after being flogged by the Jews after being beaten three times with rods, after being stoned once, after being shipwrecked three times, after being lost at sea for a night, after facing many trials and many hardships. And there is one thing that compelled Paul throughout his entire life of hardship and suffering. And there is one thing that compelled Paul in his writing of Romans, the love of God. The love of God, not Paul's love for God, because Paul knew that his own love for God was feeble. It would ebb and flow. You just have to read Romans 7 to see that. But Paul, but when Paul knew and meditated upon God's love for him, it lifted him up and propelled him through life, through hardship and through hurt. This drove Paul. This is really important. This drove Paul not only to embrace suffering, but to preach and proclaim Christ in suffering. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul said, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify, that is to proclaim solemnly the gospel of the grace of God. He was caught up and compelled. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and onward, Paul wrote, for Christ's love for us compels us, drives us, because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors 
for Christ, as though God were making appeal, his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The the love God shows his people stirred in Paul a willingness to suffer hardship and and a willingness to eagerly proclaim the gospel. Church family, I want you to understand this. This pandemic, this lockdown, this trial that we face, it's not about surviving. It's not about ensuring we survive this hardship, this situation, by hoarding up food and hoarding up savings and and doing everything we can to merely just survive. It's not about that. It's ultimately about Christ and making him known, Christ being known. It is to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. It is to grasp anew that we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his appeal through us, imploring people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. You know, when this lockdown ends, and it will end, as we begin to mingle as a community, as you begin to return back to work, as we are back out in the highways and the byways, we are to compel people to come in and taste and see that the Lord is good. And Paul reveals his heart to us in Romans and the heart of every believer whose heart is in tune with God's heart, which calls us to dwell upon the blessings that are ours as a motivation to tell others about the blessings that we have received. In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes in verses 3 through 5, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that sufferings produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope, and hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Paul was captivated and motivated by the love of God poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We are a people most blessed indeed. There is that old hymn penned in the late 1800s by Francis Crosby. We sing it at church, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it redeemed by the blood of the lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child forever. I am. We are a people. We are his children. We have so much to rejoice over. And in rejoicing over it, we are compelled to proclaim it. Let's look at that very fact that we are a people most blessed a little more this morning. In verses 26 to 39 of Romans chapter 8, which will be our focus this morning, there are four truths in our passage that put a microscope on God's love for us as believers, as his people, so that we can be motivated all the more to rejoice in the goodness of God and proclaim his goodness to a hopeless world. The first truth Paul lays before us is found in verses 26 to 27 under the very simple heading, number one, the spirit of God, the spirit of God. Look at verse 26. 
In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. In the same way. That, that refers back to what Paul has just mentioned concerning creation groaning for restoration from the curse of the fall. And he said, even we as believers long for the reversal of the fall, which will occur in glory. No more viruses in the new heavens and the new earth. No more isolation in glory. In the same way, the creation groans and we groan in our frailty as redeemed sinners who still battle sin in our own flesh, who still battle Satan's schemes. It says there in verse 26, the spirit helps in our weaknesses as we long for and as we await glory, as we sin and struggle in our weakness, as we fail as a result of our weakness on our journey. The Spirit helps us. A horrible malady among Christians is when we think we're strong, when we think that we're able, when we uh, become self-reliant. And you know what? You can, and we can theologically recite Jesus' words, without me, you can do nothing. And yet on the ground day by day, we can live as though we are very strong and self Abel, we must regularly confess the sin of self-reliance. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, we know it well, says this, Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn from evil. This will bring healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Even as believers, we are weak and frail and needy. And the more we see that weakness and, and live in light of that weakness, the more we see our need for the spirit of God and his work in our lives. I want you to note here that Paul does not say the spirit removes our weakness. It says the spirit helps our weakness. We are not strong and sturdy. We are weak and frail. And God has given us, out of his love for us, his spirit. What a love. Paul then gives an example of the spirit helping us. There's many ways in which the spirit helps us in our weakness, but Paul now gives one example, prayer. Again, it's prayer. Remember from the first message in this series, we saw that Jesus said he leaves us a peace because he sent the spirit, which then aids us to pray prayers in Jesus' name in line with the will of the father that act as the antidote to anxiety and guards our hearts. We are so blessed. We are given such grace and we're given such grace given ability that we didn't create, but was a divine gift from the treasure house of God's love. Paul is saying here, as we live our life, as those who have been regenerate by the Holy Spirit, but yet as those that are still prone to wander and to be weak and to fail. He says, when we pray prayers, as we struggle in that, the Spirit helps us pray. 
we sometimes don't know what to pray for. And the ministry of the Spirit goes ahead of us in that. Look at the end of verse 26. And intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. When we cannot find the words to say or know how to navigate through a particular scenario that we're facing, Paul is saying that in our weaknesses, in our times of desperation, one of the works of the Spirit in our lives is to take up our cause and do an effective work upon our prayers. That's all a mystery in some sense. But what we can take from this is such is the Father's love for us that he indwells us with his love through the Spirit and aids us in getting us to where he wants us to be when we commit to the act of prayer. What an encouragement that is for those of us who find prayer hard. Our eloquence in words, how we sound to others who might be hearing our prayers means nothing to God. Nothing. Look at verse 27. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That is to say, God knows our hearts, and so he knows what the Spirit is doing in our hearts. He takes the work of the Spirit and lines it up with his will. God the Spirit takes even our most feeble prayers and ignites them to arrive at the throne of God, fully pleasing to God. This is the believer's reality. This is the love of God in the believer's life. He poured out his love into our hearts. Our prayers are the outworking and overflow of God's love in our hearts. And so let us always come before our God in prayer, always recognizing our need for help, recognizing the Spirit's ministry in that help and rejoicing in the fact that we have that help because of God's love for us. His adopted children can pray knowing that his ear is always attentive to their plea. I I love that. The same cannot be said for those who are not his children who have not come seeking mercy and grace while it may be found. And for us who have received such grace upon grace, who are the children of God by divine sovereign grace, these opening verses lift up our hearts with thanksgiving. For we are held secure as believers by the Spirit of God, constantly interceding on our behalf. You know what? The Son does the same as well. Jesus does the same as well. Because look ahead at verse 34 of Romans chapter 8. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, look there, who also intercedes for us. The Son, according to Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25, always lives to make intercession for us. And so knowing all of that, and knowing that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, hearing our prayers, searching our hearts, holding us secure, ushering our most feeble of prayers, making them consistent with the will of God. As he intercedes for us, it is quite the motivation to keep praying. 
keep praying for unsaved loved ones, to keep praying for boldness to share the gospel, to testify solemnly of the grace of God in the gospel, and to pray for help to walk in greater obedience, even in times of suffering. And so the first truth we see there is the fact that we have the Spirit of God in our hearts, working in us and through us, aiding us in our weaknesses, aiding us in prayer, illuminating truth, all as an overflow of God's love for us. You know, Francis Crosby in the second verse of the famous hymn that I just read before wrote in the second verse, redeemed and so happy in Jesus. No language my rapture can tell. I know that the light of his presence with me does continually dwell. We have the spirit of the triune Godhead in us. The second truth we are given that provides motivation all the more to rejoice in the goodness of God and then proclaim his goodness to a lost world is number two, again, a simple heading, number two, the sovereignty of God in verses 28 to 30. Look at verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Here is God's love for us explained theologically and astonishingly. That last little phrase at the end of verse 28, called according to his purpose, speaks of the fact that before the world was, before time began, as places like Titus chapter 1 verse 2 and 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 makes unmistakably clear, before time began, before the world was, God purposed redemption. God planned redemption. We've looked at that in recent weeks for it is crucial in understanding God's love for you because it evidences that his love for you was not because he saw some inherent worth in you or goodness in you. Instead, out of his love for you, he planned your redemption before time began. He accomplished your redemption upon the cross, and he applied that redemption through the Spirit's work of regeneration upon your heart the day you were given the gift of faith to believe. All glory and praise to an all-loving God. Verse 28 forms the foundation for what comes in Romans chapter 9, where Paul speaks of the doctrine of election and doctrine of predestination. And the reason verse 28 can say that all things work together for the believer's ultimate good is because, look at verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. God knew you beforehand. And in knowing you beforehand, he marked you beforehand. That is what it means. That is what is meant by the word predestined. He marked us beforehand by love to be redeemed. Regeneration and sanctification come after justification. And that's when we become more and more like Jesus. Verse 30, look there. It presents this golden, unbreakable chain of God's divine love. And those whom he predestined, marked beforehand for his love, he also called. And those and these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. 
It's an unbreakable chain. Those whom he marked beforehand are those who he will effectually call by grace. And then those whom he will justify by grace alone will be glorified. It is not the believer's choice. Understand this. It is not the believer's choice that commences salvation. It is God's divine and indescribable love for us that both commences and completes salvation. We see there at the end of verse 30, those whom he justifies, as I said, he also glorifies, meaning that from the very beginning to the very end, ushering us into eternal glory is all of God. From justification to glorification, eternally secure, all as an act of God's love. We love because he first loved us. And having been on the receiving end of such amazing grace, rejoicing that the the goodness and kindness of God has led us to repentance, how, how we should long to tell others about such grace and such love. A grace that ushers the guilty sinner into the very courtroom of God, whereby the guilty sinner is declared righteous and not guilty through Christ's perfect life, which they could never live, and through his atoning death upon the cross and victorious resurrection from the dead. What a motivation. You know, here is the sovereignty of God on display, and the sovereignty of God is not something to quibble over. It is crystal clear in Scripture. It is something to rejoice over. All we ever did was sin, and God would have been perfectly just to condemn us to suffer under the full weight of his justice because of our sinful rebellion against him. But instead, out of his love, he saved us and promises us that whatever comes upon us is for our good. Only the believer can say that. Not only that, only the believer can rest in the fact that having been saved by grace alone, we will be held secure by grace alone, anchored in the righteous works of Christ alone. Only the believer can say that. Go tell it on the mountains that there is salvation found in a sovereign God who saves sinners. What a love. What a gift. What a motivation to tell those around us about such a love. Franny Crosby, as she's affectionately called, has another verse in that famous hymn. She wrote, I know I shall see in his beauty the sovereign king in whose law I delight, who lovingly guards my footsteps and gives me songs in the night. As believers, we have the Spirit who helps us in our weakness. As believers, we have received from a sovereign king a salvation that is unbreakable. His love for us holds us firm from justification to glorification. Paul now, he then responds to what he has just written regarding the sovereignty of God in salvation in verses 31 to 34. And it's in those verses that the love of God for his children, you and I, just keeps piling on. As we see now, number three, the surety 
of God in verses 31 to 34, the surety of God. After explaining the doctrine of salvation in no uncertain terms in the verses prior, which, by the way, as a bit of a side note, because it includes a thread from justification all the way through to sanctification purchased by Christ for us, also shows us that Christ also purchases our sanctification, which is progressive, meaning that the application of our redemption continues, not only occurred at the point of conversion, but continues throughout our Christian life as the Spirit applies that purchased holiness in our lives as believers. That alone is a remarkable truth worthy of a sermon alone. Paul now in these verses, verses 31 to 34, he often does what he does when he presents things that are often questioned by mankind. I always find that fascinating. God declares in his word the absolute sovereignty of God from beginning to end in salvation. And then after many of those declarations, God then moved the authors by pen to write rhetorical questions to address the objections that immediately come to the mind of mankind. The most powerful of those is obviously found in the very next chapter, Romans chapter 9, verse 20, where Paul writes after just laying out as clear as can be the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation, he says there, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? And so here again, after the golden unbreakable chain of divine grace in verses 28 to 30 that we just looked at, Paul then asks a question in verse 31. Look there. What then shall we say to these things? That's an intriguing question. Let me break it down for you. Paul is asking this to aid believers, to aid them as they're feeling overwhelmed as they may be doubting God's goodness, as they may be becoming concerned that God will let them go amidst all the hardship. The word if there is what is called a conditional conjunction. It's in the first class. I won't get too technical, but what it's conveying is is not doubt but certainty. Since God is for us is how that can be better understood. Since God is for us, who can be against us. Since God has done so much for us out of his love for us, since he has called us and justified us, and since that he will glorify us, since God is for us, what on planet earth can be against us? Now, that is not a statement to say that Christians have no one against us. In fact, the world is against us because we utterly go against the grain of the world. We literally go in the other direction. We stand out. We are countercultural. We are not of this world. The world is of their father, the devil, Jesus said. We are of our heavenly father, Jesus also said. What Paul is saying is that because the one true and living God amidst an ocean of false gods is for us, it matters not a single bit who may be against us. 
Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2 rather, verses 2 to 3 tells us that the rulers of this world, the kings of this world, the governments of this earth take a stand against Jesus. And by implication, followers of Jesus. So we have a world and a system against us. We are told in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, to not love this world, meaning there the system of this world that is against us. But it matters, the fact that the world and the rulers of this world and the governments of this world take a stand against Jesus and the followers of Jesus, it matters not even a minuscule. Let the world... Let the rulers of this world be against us. It matters not a bit. They cannot take away our position in Christ. They cannot take away our union with Christ. They cannot take away or remove the spirit of God working within us, nor our salvation, nor our joy. To nail that home, in verse 32 of Romans chapter 8, look what Paul says there. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That verse, verse 32, is in my opinion the summit of the entire book of Romans. God is for us. Fear not. Be not overwhelmed. Get a proper perspective of your suffering. Get a fresh gust of wind in your sails concerning the love of God for you. He has governed all of life thus far, and he did not spare his own son. Such was his love for you. Such was his love that he delivered up his own son for us all. Now, not all people without exception that is the heresy of universalism. All of us is what it's saying. If God is for us, verse 31, us who have been predestined, called, justified, and will be glorified, Paul is saying God is for us. And the way we know that is because he did not spare his own son for us, but delivered him over for us. The wording here from Paul brings to mind the encounter between Abraham and his son Isaac in Genesis 22. I'd love for you to turn with me quickly to Genesis 22 in your Bibles for a moment. Genesis 22. Genesis 22 verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take, your, now take, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Look at verse 7. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? 
Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the messenger of, the, of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad, the boy, and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. I want you to look back at verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad, the boy, will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Return to you. I asked myself this week, how can Abraham say that? How can he say to those men, we will go away, my son and I, we will worship, and then we will return? Well, turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And look at verse 17. Hebrews 11 verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. Verse 19. He, that's Abraham, considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Abraham, re Abraham knew that he would receive Isaac back. And so that's why Abraham could say to those men what he did, because Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac. Abraham was trusting the Lord. And it says there in Hebrews, receiving his own son back as a type, as a foreshadow, as a foreshadow of the one who was still to come, the one who would lay down like Isaac, having been sent there by his father also, the Lord Jesus. The difference is, though, that Abraham was praised by Yahweh for being willing to sacrifice his own son, yet Yahweh did not Spare his own son. No. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The immensity of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus correlates with the enormity of God's love for his children, the believer. You see, on the cross, God's love and God's wrath collide. On that cross, with God not sparing his own son, Jesus is sentenced, Jesus is slaughtered as a guilty sinner in our place. And like Abraham, who knew his son would be raised to life, God knew that his own son would be raised to life. 
and that all those who were given to the Son by the Father would have their sins forgiven, would be adopted in as sons, would be united as, would be united as sons and daughters to Christ and blessed by both the Father and the Son with everything necessary for life and godliness and glorification. You may say, well, where are you getting that from? Well, turn back to Romans chapter 8 with me and I'll show you. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 again. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he, that is the father, with him, that is the son, freely give us, that is the believer, all things. All things that ensure that we are carried along in this life until we are called home to glory. Look back up at verse 17 of Romans chapter 8. Verse 16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. Verse 17, And if children, heirs also, and heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Look at verse 33. God is the one who justifies. It says there in verse 33. God is the one who declares us not guilty and righteous in his sight because of the son, the Lord Jesus, whom he did not spare. God freely justifies. God freely forgives on that grounds of the not sparing of his own son. God's love toward us is immense. His love was costly. He spared not his own son for us. And now both father and son freely give us all things, all things in this life that aid us in fulfilling his calling upon our lives, all the way to ensuring our glorification. Where? will be with him forever in his eternal kingdom. The final verse of Franny Crosby's hymn says this, I know there's a crown that is waiting in yonder bright mansion for me and soon with the spirits made perfect at home with the Lord I shall be. His love is sure. His love will carry us all the way home. That's why Paul could say in verse 18 there of Romans chapter 8, we consider the sufferings of this present age not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The fourth and final truth now in our passage that puts a microscope on God's love for us so that we can be motivated all the more to rejoice in the goodness of God and then proclaim that goodness to a hopeless world is found in those very familiar verses and words of verses 35 to 39. Let's call it, for you who are taking notes, let's call it number four, the security of God in verses 35 to 39. Look at verse 35. Who will? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? 
Christ's love for us? Who will separate that? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, you could add to that, virus, pestilence, tanked economy? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquer. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Verse 36 in the middle there is a quote from Psalm 44, verse 22. For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul places that there to reinforce the fact that even though we are greatly loved, we too will not be immune from trouble and suffering. But the difference is, the difference is between the child of God and the child of the devil is verse 38. I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing, neither death. We are loved by God. God is for us. And because he is for us, not a thing can tear us out of his safe grip or remove us from the shelter of his wings. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure, the hymn says, that he would give his only son and make a wretch his treasure. We are so undeserving. We who are so undeserving are the objects of his love. Our victory comes not from ourselves, but from Christ given to us. We are recipients of all the blessings of God. We have every reason to rejoice for all these blessings are bound up and poured out upon. Look at the middle of verse 33 now. All these blessings are bound up and poured out upon God's elect. There can be no charge brought against God's elect. That is you if you are in Christ. That is us, his people, his children, the object of his love, the people the Spirit helps, the people who are sovereignly justified and then carried all the way to glorification securely the people who are held secure, the people who are greatly loved by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three members of the triune Godhead on display here in our passage, working here for our good and his glory. You know, Franny Crosby wrote more than 9,000 hymns. And one of the most remarkable things about her was that she had done so as one who was physically blind, unable to see. One well-meaning person remarked to her one day, quote, I think it's a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. Frenny responded at once as she'd heard such comments before. She said, quote, Do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition to God, it would have been that I was born blind. 
said Franny, who had only been able to see from her first six weeks of life. She said, because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. The love Christ has for us will empower us to get through the challenges of life. For bound up in the life of Christ are all the promises of God. The help of the Spirit, the security of God, and the glory that awaits. That is what fills our hearts with hope. Fill your mind, church family, with Christ's love for you and rejoice over it and be moved and motivated to tell others about it. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and say thank you for your immense love for us. Thank you for the spirit who helps us in our weaknesses. Thank you, Lord, that you cause all things to work together for our good. Thank you for your eternal purpose and your eternal plan. Thank you for your promise to not only call us effectually to salvation, but to keep us to glorification. Thank you, Lord, that you did not spare your own son. Thank you that the love of Christ will never be separated from us. Thank you for the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. I hope you have a wonderful day rejoicing in all the truths contained within our passage this morning. Lisa and I love you. We love you dearly. We pray for you. We long to see you soon. Take care.